Let's begin today together in prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask you to speak life into this word. I pray that you would give ears of the listeners to hear the gospel proclaimed in this passage from Psalm 22. Thank you that it's your living word. And God, just lay your hand on me. Touch my lips with the coals from your altar. Touch my mind to have clarity, to have a vibrancy of the, and the ability to articulate your word, but to articulate it only in a way that pleases you and speaks clearly of what you once said today. We give thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Every time I come to the pulpit, I come with somewhat, I guess you might call fear and trembling. Every time I stand here behind this, what many call the sacred desk, I have a sense I'm standing on holy ground. I come to the task of preaching with reverence for God and knowing that this is a task that uh, is crucial. I believe in the generation we're living in, it's vital. But one thing that I found strange this week is as I was studying Psalm chapter 22, as we're continuing our series on the book of Psalms, one of the things I noticed about Psalm 22 was not just the waiting to preach the Word of God, but I felt like I was standing on holy ground as I just began to study this passage of Scripture. I, I felt like taking my shoes off and because it wasn't just Moses standing in front of a burning bush getting direction for the deliverance of Israel, but it's Jesus, Jesus speaking of his cross. That's why I'm entitling this message, a Psalm, the Psalm of the Cross. This is Jesus and his cry. This is Jesus in his trauma. This is Jesus in his most desperate hour of crisis. This is Jesus with a sense of being forsaken. This is Jesus crying out to his father and for a, for a moment in time not having that answer until there's a deliverance that comes, but it's also Jesus triumphant. It's also Jesus, the, de the, the deliverer and the delivered one. It's Jesus, the elder brother who's gone in front of us and brought us to a place of, of victory. So as you listen to these words being spoken to you today from the passage of Scripture and from my comments on them, my desire is that you would sense that you were on this place of holy ground in the presence of a Most High God who is allowing us to peek and peer into this most holy moment in all of history between the Father and the Son, this covenant that was taking place. Psalm chapter 22 is a covenant passage. Psalm 22 is a cross passage. Psalm 22 is a resurrection passage. Psalm 22 is a fulfillment of all the covenants of God spoken from history till the final day is fulfilled. And we're going to see that in this passage. Before we actually look into the text itself, if we back up into Psalm 21, if you were with us in our last session, we were studying Psalm 21. And in there, we were seeing how the Father gave Jesus, his Son, all of his heart's desire. Psalm 21, verse 2 says, You, speaking of the Father, have given him, speaking of the Son, his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. You meet him with rich blessings. Here we see Jesus speaking to the Father, praying to the Father, giving the Father his heart's desire, and the Father saying, I have not withheld any of the requests that come from your lips. Then, as we studied last week, we went into Psalm, excuse me, we went into John, to John chapter 17, that high priestly prayer where Jesus prayed for his brothers and sisters, where Jesus prayed for you and I 
And we hear this prayer of that, that we might have a revelation of God, that we might know him and his glory, that we might keep from falling away, that we'd be kept from worldliness and from apostasy, from, from losing our faith, that, 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 that the prayer was that we'd have eternal life, that the prayer would be joy, our joy would be fulfilled, that we'd be one with the Father and the Son, that we'd be one with each other. All these prayers of Jesus were the desires of his heart, and every single one of them was answered by the Father, all of God's Answers to Jesus' prayer are yes and amen. We looked at that in depth last week. Now in chapter 22, it reveals the reality, the process, the difficulty, the traumatic events that would be required for those prayers to be fulfilled. It, it is it, The Bible says that the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. So there is a required righteousness for us to walk in in order to receive the promises of God. And we see this here in, in Jesus, that he is fulfilling all obedience, even suffering to the point of death on the cross, in order to fulfill all obedience, to fulfill the law in totality. And so what he is receiving in Psalm 21 with joy and delight and, and passion, now all of a sudden takes a sort of a dark turn, and he's saying, okay, but to receive these things, to win these things, to battle through those things, to see God's victory in these things, it's going to require, it's going to cost something. There's going to be a requirement on my life, Jesus is saying. I want to break this down into three different ways of looking at this passage. It's rather long, 131 verses, and I want to break them down into three parts because there's a shift that takes place. There is a process, a progression going from one element to another, from the cross to the grave to the victory. But look at this, verses 1 through 18, I'm calling the piercing of Jesus. He was pierced. He was wounded for our transgression. The second one we see Jesus in verse 19 through 21 is the prayers of Jesus, that he's, a, he's the praying Christ. And the last one is in verse 22 through 31. It's the praising Christ the praising Jesus. So we have the pierced Christ, we have the praying Christ, and we have the praising Christ. These are things that Jesus entered into, and he's asking us to follow with him, to, 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 to take up our cross with him, but also to pray and intercede with him through the power of the Holy Spirit's presence, and then to come out of that with a great praise that he has heard our cry, that he has heard our prayer. There's no trouble that you're in. There's no trial that you're facing. There's no suffering that you're going through. There's no piercing in your own life, in your own heart, that you are experiencing right now, where the prayers that will availeth much through an obedient heart, you'll find yourself coming out of that to be a person of praise. Here's what I'm saying. Praise awaits you. No matter what kind of trial you're in today, no matter what difficulty you're facing, praise awaits you. God's going to have a song to put in your heart. He's going to see you triumph over your enemies. He's going to see all of your foes defeated. He's going to see resurrection life. All of this came about is being spoken of in Psalm 22, the covenant the new covenant that he's made with us. So let's dig into the scripture. Are you ready? The piercing of Christ is the first one. Um, introduction of Psalm 22 is to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you been so far from saving me For the words from the words of my groaning? Verse two, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. Besides breaking this psalm down into these three sections, the piercing, the praying, and the praising, you could break each of these three sections down into 
subsections. And in here, I want to talk about in this first one, under the piercing, is we're going to see the cry, we're going to see the contrast, we're going to see the condemnation, we're going to see the confusion, and we're going to see the conflict. Five things that happen when your life is being pierced. Five things that happen to Jesus. And really, that's what the text is about, not so much about you and I. And we need to understand that not everything is written just uh, so that we could feel better or do better or or uh, overcome certain circumstances. Sometimes we just need to read this to honor Jesus, to glorify Jesus, to know him well. Sometimes we need to go to the word and, and not ask, what can I get out of this? But just other than the fact that we get Jesus, we get to know him, we get to love him. But there are certain things that we can relate to in, in our own life. And the first one is the cry, this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus says, my God, he's speaking in the Hebrew there, my L, E-L, the, the, the L is a Hebrew word for strength or power, omnipotence. And, and he does it in a personal way. He doesn't just say, oh God, but he says, my God. Not oh God, but my God. It's a personalized call, a personalized affinity, a personalized knowledge of the power of God. If, if you took this in the Hebrew, and literally he would be on the cross, because Jesus quoted this on the cross. This is a prophetic word uh, about what was to come, and Jesus was on the cross, and he really, in, in a sense, he was stretching out and crying out and saying, oh strength, oh strength, oh omnipotence, oh omnipotence. He trusted in the power of God in his most traumatic moment. And many of us listening to this today have been through various traumas. Childhood abuse, brokenness, marriage crisis, divorce, poverty, sickness, fear, anxiety, emotional distress. And, and we learn from Jesus here. We learn from Jesus to say no matter what kind of trial you're facing, to, to start your prayer, to start your, your intercession, to start your communion with God by crying out to his strength, by personalizing it. Rather than accusing God, rather than being distant from God, rather than uh, uh, accusations of an angry fist towards God, you're, you're starting off with honor. My God, my, my strength, my power, my, my, my source, it's all in you. you. You are my life. And so it's the cry. And, and, and I love that he starts off with a sense of relationship. It shows trust. Even when the father will turn his face away, even when the father will forsake him, he, he refuses to stop saying, my, my, you're mine, you're my God. You, you may be, <clears throat> we may have the sense of being more distant than ever before, but you've not truly forsaken me, not in the long run. It's a temporary forsaking. But, but my cry, forsaken by God, I, 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 I can't proclaim anything else that you're faithful. I can't proclaim anything else but that you're true. I can't proclaim anything else that you're my God and you're good and you'll always be good and I have nothing to fear. But in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the traumatic events of life and the trauma here, we see this cry saying, why? My God, my God, why? That's the question, isn't it? Oh my goodness, this is so pertinent to our life today. This question of why. What, why is this happening to me? Why, why am I going through this? Why, why am I troubled like this? What, what did I do to deserve this? And now when you look at Jesus particularly, he could be saying something that you and I could not say. He could be saying, I lived in perfect obedience. Adam and Eve couldn't do that. 
Abraham couldn't do it. King David couldn't do it. None of the prophets who preached against sin could do that. But Jesus could say to the Father, I lived in perfect and complete obedience to your word, to your law, to your ordinances, to your commandments, to your heart's desire. I did all things that you required of me. I was the only one and righteous human being ever. Jesus could have said that. But he's asking this question, well, what did I do wrong to, to deserve this? Jesus didn't come uh, to say in grace that he was doing away with the law. He didn't come and say, uh, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to do away with the rules and regulations of the Father because nobody can keep it. Jesus came to say it can be kept. And, and he kept those and yet he's still asking this question, why? He came to fulfill all righteousness and he did so. And it seemed like that should bring nothing but pleasure to the Father. And certainly in Christ Jesus, the Father brought down full pleasure on him, saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. But this is the righteous Jesus. And it's important that we take a moment just to think about this righteousness of Christ, this perfect righteousness. It wasn't a righteousness that said, we, we are doing away with the law because nobody can keep it. It's too difficult. It's too high. So let's just lower the bar, lower the standard, and let everybody sort of get in uh, under a lower standard. No, Jesus said God's standard is unchanging. God's purity is, is unparalleled and unshakable and unmovable. And rather than lower the bar and the standard, Jesus came in humanity and he lived a perfect life. He was the only true, just, holy, and righteous one. Righteousness, if you want to get a definition of his conformity to God's own being, conformity to God's own being, this is a definition of righteousness. And so when we ask the question, are, are you righteous? Are, the question is, are you perfectly obeying him? It is being just and right in the eyes of God, fully approved by God, complete obedience to the word, to the law, to the commands of God, both in actions and in motives. We speak of sin being the, the sins of commission and sins of omission, things we commit that we should not be doing and things that we omit, things that we should be doing that we're not doing. And when we look at those things through the actions, but then also our motives, you can uh, omit something from your life and, and then say, I'm not supposed to omit that. And then you go ahead and do that, but with the wrong motives, it's still sin. And so we see this unrighteousness, Romans tells us that there are none righteous, no, not one. And so Jesus came uh, with no sins of omission. He didn't leave anything out that was part of the perfect law of God. Commission, he didn't fail God in any particular way. He was just and right in the eyes of God, fully approved by God in complete obedience to the word, to law, the commands of God, both in action and motives. Conformity to God's own being was perfectly found in Jesus. So if anybody had the right to ask the question, why me? Why, why Father, are you putting this upon me? It would be Jesus the most undeserving of any kind of punishment, of wrath, of being forsaken, the, the, the most undeserving of that, where we are the most deserving of that. We would not be able to ask that question if we were put on the cross. Why? Because of our sins, our rebellion, our, our unrighteousness. And this is where it goes to the point of sometimes we feel like, how could God judge somebody like a neighbor who's nice and they're kind and they're a good father and they work hard? How could God judge them? He can judge them because they're unrighteous. 
because they've fallen short of the glory of God, because they've rebelled against God, because of sins of commission and omission, because they're not conforming to God's own being, because they're not trusting him in fullness, because they've not relied on the righteousness given to them by the grace that is imputed by God himself. And there's judgment deserved. But Jesus could ask the question, why? Because judgment was not deserved by him. Going on, he says, why have have, that's an important word, uh, the King James hast, H-A-S-T. Why hast thou forsaken me? The, and, and it's a past tense word. It means it's something that has been done. It is, an, listen to this, it's an actual forsaking. It's not a feeling. Jesus didn't say here, why do I feel like you're not near? Or he didn't say, Father, come close to me right now because I'm, I'm having this sense or this feeling of being forsaken. No, he was literally forsaken by his father. This word is not hyperbole. This word is not fantasy. This word is not imagination. This is clearly telling what was happening on the cross of Jesus Christ. And why is this important, this word have? Why, why take a few seconds to talk about this? Because it's something done. It's not, why do I feel? It's, why is this happening? And the reason it's happening is because Jesus could be forsaken for a moment so that you and I would not be forsaken the rest of our life. Jesus could be forsaken temporarily so that eternally we could be received into the family of God. There, we, we see here the wrath of God was appeased. We see here that we are not under the wrath we are not forsaken, even though we deserve to be forsaken. He should not look upon sin. He, he should not receive us into his family or into his kingdom. But he does because Jesus took the wrath of the Father upon himself. And he was forsaken so that we don't have to be. He was, he was beaten so that we could be forgiven. He, he was wounded for our transgression so that we could be clean, clean, holy, righteous, imputed into us the work of Jesus. Here's what's happening. He's taking upon himself the things that we deserve, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the, the, the judgment of God, and the forsakenness of God, that God would not look upon sin in any way, form, or fashion. And it's something that has been done. And this is not something to get angry with God. There's many in what's called the progressive movement of the church that say, how could the father, how could a loving father allow his son to be abused? This is not spiritual uh, parental abuse. This is the the son and the father coming together in covenant and saying, we will do this. We will take this upon ourselves in order that the children, the inheritance that we have could come to me. Why have you, Jesus uses this powerful word, why have you? Oh, it could have been, uh, he, he could have borne the, the forsakenness of, of the Roman soldiers or of Pilate or even of Judas he could have even forsaken the. He could have even been forsaken by the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He, he could have uh, understood his disciples forsaking him. He could have understood their fear and their confusion, and the, even the prophetic word that they would be scattered. He could have understood that if it was you, Pharisees, if it was you, Romans, if it was you, disciples, if it was you, my own family. But the you he's talking about here is God Himself. But you, you, the one I was eternally connected with, the, 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 that, that now in this instance of time, there's this sense of being separated, forsaken, almost as if, it, if, if I took on the sins of the world and there, there was a sense of feeling the, the lostness in my own life. 
and, and certainly having the reality of the forsakenness. Why have you forsaken? Why, why is there this, this sense of, uh, of separation? Why, 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 in like verse 11, it says, be not far from me. Why, why do I feel that you're, you're, you're far from me, that you're departed from me? There's this sense of being forsaken, as we've mentioned. And the last thing he says is me. Why have you forsaken me? It would certainly make sense that you've forsaken Adam and Eve, even though you didn't. It would make sense that you forsook Noah and his children after they came out of the ark and judgment. They went right back into their sin. I can understand all of that forsakenness, but, 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 but it's not them that you've forsaken. You've forsaken me. And again, it's in our place he stood condemned. Jesus took our place. This word me there is so powerful because it should be you. It should be me, I, Gary. It should be you who listening to me today. It, it, it should not necessarily have been forsaken Jesus, but Jesus accepted the cross. He went with the joy set before him, as the Bible says, so that he could lead us into a life not forsaken, but in communion with God. And then in verse two, he goes, oh my God, Three times now he's saying, crying out to the sense of the strength of God, the power, majesty, and might of God. Um, and and, he, and he's, he's talking about being so, in verse one, he's talking about why you're so far from me. And then verse two, he says, I cry to you by day and you do not answer and by night and I find no rest. This is not, again, um, just uh, hyperbole. This is an actuality. Jesus on the cross is saying, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. So Jesus on the cross, two full days, two full nights, risen, uh, rose again on the third day. But for those two days plus, there was this sense of, and this reality of being forsaken, and there's this cry to God. Imagine that. It's not just the, the physical pain of the suffering on the cross, it's not just the, 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 the wounds of the hands and the feet. It's the reality of, of being the sin bearer, being the sacrificial lamb, of, of uh, taking the wrath of God upon himself, of, of sensing God's displeasure of the sin that he was bearing up uh, for on our behalf. And he, and he does this for days, and he does this for nights. It's an unrelenting, it's an unrelieving. And, and this speaks to me. Because my troubles are not so deep, my, my pain not so vast, my horror is not so overwhelming as what Jesus suffered those two days. In those two days, Jesus suffered more than you and I could possibly suffer in a lifetime. Even if we were in a concentration camp, even if we had the worst physical sickness, even if we were tortured, none of that would be the same thing as for day after day, day and night, day and night, until the resurrection. All, the, all that time, having all the sin of the world, all the anger, all the murder, all the pain, all the suffering, all the hatred, all the wars, all the murder, all these things placed upon him. And, and then the father turning his face. This, this is ultimate suffering. And it, and it, and it tells me that he, he bore, he bore my pain. He bore my sorrow. He bore my grief. He bore my sin. And, and I can now turn that over to Jesus and say, God, I trust you. If you could trust your father in that kind of hour, then I can trust you in an hour like this. I cry out to you. So there's the cry. And then in verse 3, 4, and 5, there's a contrast. There's now a contrast that takes place. Right in the midst of, of Jesus and King David as well, crying out to, to, to the father, there's like this sense of memory. There's this sense of 
of, of going back to something. There's the sense of, why am I crying out to God if he's forsaken me? There's, and all of a sudden he goes back and he contrasts himself with, and he says this, yet. Oh, that's a powerful word. The start of verse 3 is powerful, yet or but. Yet there's something coming. Yet there's a reality. Yet there's a change. Yet there's a difference. Uh, I feel forsaken, and yet this is going to happen. And, uh, and I'm despised a man, but yet I believe there's going to be a resurrection. And death is imposing itself upon me, but there's going to be life coming up out of this. There's this powerful yet. And there's always in Christ Jesus a yet in our life. Things may look like this, yet things will be like this. Things may be difficult now, yet things will be delivered. You'll be delivered from. There's going to be a transformation. That's what that first word of verse 3 is. It can, you can almost be saying, transform things because you are holy. He's righteous and he's going to do right and he's going to know what's right. And you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. When, when, when Israel, when people praise you, your, your throne, your presence comes into that place. In verse 4, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Can you hear Jesus saying this? There's a contrast between what I'm experiencing on the cross right now and what I remember of your works of old. And that's why the Bible is so full of passages that call upon us to remember what God has done, both historically in Scripture and also in your life. I remember praying for my children that were lost and far from God and seeing them delivered. I remember praying for my children when it seemed like the addiction was going to cause them to, to get an overdose and I might see them in a morgue one day. And, to, and yet I began to remember what God has done. And now I remember when I pray for others, I remember that power. I remember that O-L, that God strength, my strength, my strength. I remember that and, 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 and that contrast brings joy in the midst of a storm. So don't get wallowing in your trauma and your traumatic events of your life without contrasting it to the power of God, what He is capable of doing. That's really important that you remember this. Don't get stuck in wallowing as a victim in, in the traumatic events of your life without contrasting it to your history with God and to God's history with His children, that He's always faithful, that He always overcomes, that He's always, 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 always triumphant in our situations. And when you call upon that, you begin to get filled with trust yourself. Even when the circumstances haven't changed yet, you begin to get filled with trust. That's why three times in these three verses, he talks about they trusted, they trusted, they trusted. They trusted, they, in your, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. Verse five, to you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Several things happening here. He, he's saying, I, I am forsaken, and yet I'm going to do what my fathers did before me, the spiritual fathers of Israel. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. He's relying on the character, the nature, and the attributes of God. He said that, that you're enthroned, that, that you're trusted, that you're delivered, that you rescued. In you, they trusted and you're not put to shame. These are Things that we use to depend on God because we know his nature. We know what he's like, and that can bring a powerful trust. He's relying on the history as well, as I just said. But he's, he's also doing something else. He's contrasting. And to some degree, it's got to be difficult to, to remember what he's done for others, but say, in this hour, it's not happening for me right now. It's hard to see others delivered. You go, praise God, I thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for them. Their marriage got healed. Their uh, children, prodigal children came back, but hasn't worked this way for me. But so, so, so Jesus himself understands what it's like to be in an hour 
where you're not seeing the deliverance, but he's, but he's counting on the character and nature, the goodness of God, the power of God, the strength of God, the compassion of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the nearness of God. He's counting on these things, even while he's still in the trial and tribulation of his life, yet you are holy. He's believing God for something he's not seeing right at this moment. But then there's this shift, and, 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 and this is hard to look at, but it's also important for us to look at because we see these things in our own life. There's this shift. I feel good. Oh, now I'm down. Uh, David himself cries many times, why so downcast? Oh, my soul, put your trust in God. The remedy is certainly here, but why do we go from, from difficulty and trial and tribulation? And then we go down into the pit and the sorrow and the despair again. And then we come up out of that and then we're downcast again. Why are we shifting back and forth like this? We can see even in Jesus's own life on the cross, he is bearing up our, our condemnation. So we see the cry, we see the contrast. And number three, we see the condemnation. Jesus is sensing the condemnation of the Father that was put upon him. He was, he was condemned for us so that we don't have to be condemned. And, and, and in this sense of bearing the weight of, of our sin, he says this, verse six, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue, for he delights in him. This is prophetic to what Jesus suffered on the cross, not only bearing the pain of, of, the, the, of the beating and the crown of thorns and the nails in his hands and his feet, but the scorn, the Roman soldiers mocking him, the, the Pharisees and religious leaders laughing, scorning, spitting upon him. This is Jesus, the one that angels cover their faces, not daring to look at his beauty and glory. This is, this is Jesus who we, we long to see him and to know him and his preciousness and his delightfulness and his wonder and his grace and his mercy. And, and when we look at Jesus, it's meant to be a delight. And here they are looking at him, spitting upon him, scorning, mocking calling him names, laughing at him and, and, and saying, yeah, let, let, let the one rescue you who you trust in. And, and this, is the, this is the condemnation that, that, that he's, he's, he's holding, the condemnation of, of the sin being, the, the sin bearer that he had. And this causes what I would call the fourth thing, the confusion, verse 9 and 10. He says, yet you, this is verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb, you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Here, I believe, could be the confusion. Uh, I have known you since I have my earliest childhood memories. Jesus even saying, even in my mother's womb, when, when I was breastfeeding, I, I knew you. I was intimate with you. I saw you. Uh, you. You took me. Look at these words in verse 9. You took me from the womb. And on you, I was cast from my birth. I was taken out of my mother's womb, boom, and cast right upon you. How powerful. From day one, I was cast upon you. I was yours. I was completely yours. We were intimate. We were in relationship. We were in covenant. And, and now something different. Now I'm asking this question, why have you forsaken me? And uh, then he goes on in verse 11, and he says, be not far from me. For trouble is near, and there is none to help. 
He's going back to this issue of trust. You see him kind of going up and down a little bit. Uh, the dilemma of his crisis, and yet the trust that he has and the faith that he has in his heart. So he's asking the Lord, this is now a second time, don't be far from me. There's troubles all around me. Don't be far from me. So right after the confusion, then he begins to speak about the actual conflict itself. Verse 12 through 18, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Basham surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me. Look at that. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For all my clothing, they have cast my lot. Uh, they have cast lots. You see here the suffering, the suffering Savior, the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. Some Jewish teachers even today say that the Bible in the Old Testament prophesies two different. Messiahs, one, a suffering servant. That's how they can take things like Isaiah 52 and 53 and see the Messiah is suffering. Well, that's one. He's come to, to, to bear the suffering of, of the children of Israel. But then there's the other one, the, the, the sovereign Messiah, the king Messiah, the reigning Messiah, the ruling Messiah, the, the Messiah with the sword, the Messiah who doesn't suffer. They could not justify that these th two things could be one, that you could be ruling and reigning as king and yet suffer and so Jesus is talking about his suffering here, and many don't want to hear this part of Jesus. Even in our evangelical churches today, we, we like to dismiss this thought or, or to, to negate it or to diminish it to the point of barely being spoken of that Jesus suffered in our place because of our sin uh, and, and to speak of these things. And so Jesus talks about these, these things, and if you, if, if you look at this, you see he's not talking about here of... Uh, this couldn't be David because he's talking about death. You lay me down into death. Uh, his hands being pierced, his feet being pierced. This is clearly Jesus that is, is speaking here. I count on my bones. They divide my garments among them for my uh, clothing. They cast lots. You don't cast lots for clothing of somebody who is going to continue to be alive. It's, it's when the Roman soldiers know that this person is going to be dead, they can take, and take their clothes and say, hey, he's not going to need them. So Jesus understands what he's talking about here, this being forsaken by the Father was going to end in death. When I say end, I don't mean the end of the story, but, but the cross itself, the crucifixion itself, would, he would not be lifted from it. He would not be excused from it. He would not find remedy from it. He was going to literally die on that cross. And then in verse 19, all of a sudden, everything's changing. It changes from the piercing that we've been talking about to the prayers that Jesus prays. The prayers that Jesus prays. Look at these prayers in verse 19, 20, and 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. This is the, 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 the call. So going back, we talked about the cry, the contrast, the, the, the condemnation, the confusion, the conflict, uh, and now the call, Jesus calling upon his Father. Uh, and it says here, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, for you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
Jesus is using this, this imagery here of wild oxen just, just bombarding him, lions tearing at him, piercing his hands and his feet, his, uh, his, the, the, the power of a dog, a dog biting and chewing at him, and the deliverance he needs, his soul from the sword. You see these things striking against him, and he's praying, Lord, in verse 20, deliver my soul from these things. Deliver me from the dog. Deliver me from the lion. Deliver me from the oxen. And Jesus was, we'll see in just a moment, he was delivered from that power, the power of darkness, so that you and I could be delivered. He died for our sins, not just so that we can be sinless uh, or without sin, being forgiven of sin, but he died on the cross so that we could have power over the, the, the enemy. He was going to crush the serpent's head. He wasn't just going to absorb the wound in his heel for us, but that he was going to crush Satan's head. And these things were really the sword, the, the dog, the lion, the wild oxen, every single one of them is going to be defeated. Not one of those will have power and authority over you. Jesus has, given, has been given all authority and he has triumphed over the powers of darkness. So this prayer changes everything. He's gone from one who's feeling forsaken or is forsaken in reality, as we're saying here today, into one who knows he's going to be delivered. He knows the death is coming and his garments will be cast as lots among them, but he knows that he's going to be delivered from these dogs. He's going to be delivered from these things that are, that are trying to destroy him. Now, comes this next thing, the, the, the third thing, the praise of Christ. And, and this is after the call comes the confession. After the, after the prayer that, that, is, that is before the, that comes after the piercing comes the third thing, and it's the praise. The, the cross that leads to prayer ends in praise. The life that's is of one of suffering and sorrow that cries out to God, the call on God, ends in one that is a praise to God. The Praise has the last word, as I say sometimes. Praise has the last word. In verse 22 through 31, I, I don't have time to go into every verse, so I'll, I'll just hit on some of the highlights. But I want to say to you, in verse 22, it says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. So he's just talked about being pierced in his hands and his feet. He just talked about bearing the sin of the world upon himself. He's just talked about being forsaken by God. But he knows that, that the power of crying out, my God, my God, my strength, my strength, has breakthrough power, has, has trusting power, has faith and confidence power, that we'll be able to stand not in the death but in the resurrection not in the crisis, but in the newness of life. I'll stand and I'll tell of God's goodness in the congregation. I'll tell how he's redeemed me, how he's rescued me, how he's lifted me from the pit. I'll tell how he's forgiven all my sins. This is the story we get to tell. Jesus told the story that my father raised me from the grave. Jesus told the story that I bore the sins of the world. Jesus tells the story that I bore the wrath of God so that you don't have to. Jesus tells the story that I was forsaken so that you don't have to be forsaken. But now he stands in the congregation and he's going to tell his brothers that he's going to praise the Father for giving him the power to make a way for you and I to be free from condemnation, guilt, shame, the ox, the lion, the, the, the sword into our soul. We're free from those things. And we get to, like 
Jesus stand in the congregation and tell our testimony. I once was, but now I am. I once was this. I once was lost, but now I am found. I once was addicted, but now I'm free. I once was in adultery, but now I'm secure and, and holy and pure in the things of God. Verse 23, for you who fear the Lord, praise him. This fear of the Lord comes over me, not an unhealthy fear, but the fear of, oh, he, this holy ground that we're talking about today. The sense of this word, Psalm 22, having a power to deliver us from the pit, give us resurrection, and the fear of the Lord, where we trust in him and not our own resources, gives me the ability to say, I praise you, Lord. I praise you in the morning. I praise you in the night. I praise you when I am forsaken. I praise you when you're with me. I praise you when I feel down. I praise you when I feel up. There's this this reality that we can praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Not only praise him, but glorify him to, to honor his name, to reverence his name, to see him as other, greater, more powerful, holy, just, true, righteous, to glorify his name and stand in awe. My goodness, this is something I want more of in my life. This is something I pray that you would invite into your life. God, give me a sense of awe of who you are. I don't want to see you as in a trifling way. I don't want to see you uh, in a meager way. I don't want to see you as, as just something uh, on my level. I, I want to have awe and reverence of a holy God, that, that you are different, that you're other, you're, that you're greater, that you are to be revered, not to be taken lightly, not to be spoken of in churches in, in a diminished fashion, not to be, not, not to, to preach a sermon and more about self-help and like a TED talk, just trying to get us through life with some, some good advice, but holy ground we're on. And, and, and coming into his presence with awe. The same thing for our worship, that we worship with a sense of awe, not, not a lightness, not a, not a frivolity. Uh, yes, we can be joy, it can be, there can be fun even, but, but it's all wrapped up in the sense of, I stand in awe of you. I stand in awe of you. All of your offspring of Israel. Israel. He's crying out for all of us to come into this. Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. What's this saying? That the father is not despising when Jesus was afflicted. He's not, he's not diminishing it. He's not looking down upon it. There's, there, he realizes how much awe it will inspire us to have for the reverence and holiness of God. In other words, the affliction of the afflicted was effective. It, 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 it accomplished its purpose. It's not to be abhorred as if it was just a horrible thing that had no significance, no meaning. It was purposeless. He was caught by evil men and they put him on the cross and the, uh, the plans of God were thwarted forever. No, it's the opposite of that. God didn't despise or abhor this because the affliction of the afflicted has caused God's purposes to become a reality. And the continuing verse says, and he has not hidden his face from him but he was heard when he cried to him. He's not, he didn't hide his face, but he was heard. Going back to now Psalm 21, when we talked about verse two, you have given him, this is the father giving to the son, the heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. He, he was heard on the cross. He, he, he said, in a sense, he's saying, don't, don't despise, don't abhor, Father, 
the affliction that I'm afflicted with, because it is because of this cross that it, 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 it loosens, it frees up, it, it establishes the covenant that I want to make with the people, that we want to make with the people. It sets the covenant in motion that all these things I'm praying in John 17, that they might be one with you and with me and with each other and that they might be forgiven of their sins. They might have eternal life. They might be filled with joy. They might um, uh, never fall away. All these things he's praying are yes and amen to God because he was heard on that cross in his moment of affliction and his moment of forsakenness. And again, I want to repeat this because it's so important. He was forsaken so that we don't have to be. He bore our sins so that we don't have to pay the penalty of, of our sins. He cried day and night so that we don't have to cry day and night, but we can come with confidence into the throne room of grace and be heard now by God. Verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. This, this word vow is a covenant word. And this is Psalm 22, as I said earlier, is not just a resurrection for a, a psalm. It's not just a uh, it's not just an affliction psalm. It's not just a cross psalm, but it's a covenant psalm as well. And he's saying, I'm going to stand up in front of them. And the vows that I made, the covenant is between the Father and the Son, saying, uh, Jesus saying, I'll, I'll die for them, and, and you'll then accept them. And that was the covenant that the Father and the Son made. Now he stands before the congregation, and he's going to proclaim that, the great praise of the Father. And the result of that then is found in verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Look at verse 29 real quickly, just skipping down. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Twice it's mentioning this word eat here, but I think it has something to do with the result of the cross, creating a moment in time where Jesus celebrates communion with his children, where he breaks the bread and we eat, and he takes the cup and we drink. And this is the blood of my new covenant. And this is the bread of my new covenant, body broken for you, blood shed for you. The, Jesus made that covenant with the Father that my body will be broken and my blood will be shed and all sin will be cleansed of those who trust in the Lord, who have the awe and reverence of God, who come into covenant, who enter into the covenant that the Father has with the Son. And we begin to eat this meal. And, and what is it? It's remembering. It's remembering the covenant that Jesus made with his father, the covenant to be forsaken so that we would not have to be. And, and so in verse 27, then he speaks more in covenant terms. Here's Jesus delighting. Here's Jesus celebrating. And he's speaking in covenant terms. He says, and all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship him for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the covenant that the father made with Abraham saying that, that through your descendant, through your seed, Jesus was the seed, not seeds in plural as the New Testament says, but the seed Jesus Christ himself would be the Abrahamic covenant of turning families to the Lord, not only families, but the families of all nations. Uh, every tribe and every tongue would be represented at the throne room of, of grace, at the throne room of judgment, at the throne room of God. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue would be there because of this covenant that Jesus made with the Father, that it was the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled in the covenant that Jesus had with it. And then in verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth and shall eat and worship before him. They shall bow down who go to the dust, even the ones who could not keep themselves alive, the prosperous and the poor. 
Both come into this throne room of grace. Both come into this communion, this, this communion of the covenant, remembering what Jesus has done for us. So Jesus can say these words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus could be poured out like water. Jesus could have his bones broken out, uh, out of joint. He could have his heart max, uh, melt with wax, like wax. He could be pierced in hands and his feet because he knows that's the new covenant of his blood shed for us so that we could partake of that communion and say, I am received. I'm accepted in the beloved. I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm washed. And I eat and drink to remember all that Jesus has done for me. Posterity shall serve him so this covenant is not just for Abraham's generation, nor for David's generation, nor even for the first century church generation, but, but the seed, the posterity after him, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Thank God that here we are, the 21st century now, and we're still being told of this new covenant. We're still being told of Jesus being forsaken for our benefit and that his blood was shed for our victory. And it's and, 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 and then it says, and of the coming generation, should the Lord tarry and not come back in our generation, and I, I'm trusting and believing and hoping with all my heart that he will, but should he hold off his second coming, the next generation is going to be told. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry about the next generation. What happens if, if there's no Christians? What happens if they're all backsliding? What happens if they all lose their faith? What happens if they all go off to university and become skeptics and atheists and agnostics? No, there's going to be a coming generation that are going to be told, that are going to understand, that are going to be a remnant, that are going to be a holy people. Don't be afraid for your children. Don't be afraid for the next generation. God is going to raise up a next generation, holy, pure, true, full of the fire of the Holy Ghost, because this is the promise of the Lord. This is the covenant he made that every generation would be represented in every nation. In verse 31, it closes by saying, and they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Who's going to come? A coming generation. They're going to come and proclaim righteousness to people yet unborn. So my children are going to tell it to their children. Again, should the Lord tarry and their children are going to tell it to their children. God is always going to have a people. His covenant is too strong to be broken. It's it's like, like everything passing away. Even then, his covenant would not be broken and shall come to pass that this they're going to proclaim his righteousness to people yet unborn. And then it finishes with these words, that he has done it. Here's what they're going to be saying, that he has done it, that he has done it. Can you say those words? That he has done it. He saved me from my sin, that he has done it. He's kept me in the power of the Holy Spirit, that he has done it. That he who began a good work in me, he, he has done it. He is faithful to complete that good work. He has done it. He who justified me, he has done it. Is the same one who's going to sanctify me. He has done it. He who, who, who called me into his grace, when I pray for my children, I can say, he has done it. He has rescued them. And they can speak that to the next generation. I can say, he has done it. God has done something good. He delivered Jesus from the cross. He rose him from the grave. He resurrected him from the grave so that you and I could have the newness of life and speak that in the congregation to praise the Lord in awe and wonder and majesty of God that we proclaim it to those even yet unborn that he has done it. Some Hebrew scholars and linguists say that these last few words here, that he has done it, could be translated into English, it is finished. 
It is finished. The same word that Jesus said on the cross. He, he said on the cross, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, have, why are you so far from saving me from my words of groaning? He starts the psalm by that, but he ends it by saying, It is finished. The work that I was intended to do on the cross and the burial and the grave and the resurrection, it is finished now. And, I, and Jesus ascended to the right hand of God and rules from a, on, in majesty on high so that you and I could be incorporated into that life, that death of our own sin, the burial of our own sin, the resurrection in Christ Jesus being covered by him at the very throne room of grace before the Father. And we stand in awe of God. This psalm, why I started this sermon by saying, I feel like I'm standing on holy ground, not just by preaching it, but even by reading these words. They are off. They are full of awe and splendor and majesty. And, and, I, and as I read them and as I preach these today, and I pray that as you hear these today, you'll have that same sense of awe that it is finished. And when, that, when we understand that it's finished, then we know it's not our striving to overcome. It's not our striving for victory. It's not our striving for righteousness. It's not our striving for perfection. It's not our striving for sanctification. Jesus finished that work on the cross. And he who justified you by his work on the cross is going to sanctify you by his work on the cross so you can trust him now no matter what you're going through. Can you say what David said? Can you say what Jesus said? Can you say what I'm saying today? Praise him in the congregation. Praise him in the sanctuary. Tell of his wonderful works because God has been good to us by what he's done. And we get the revelation of that here in Psalm 22. Let me close in a word of prayer for you. Father, I pray that the, the multitude of my words today would not uh, be dull, would not be uh, ineffective, but they would go forth for what you sent them for. You sent these words, God, you sent them not to entertain. You sent them not to be a wow factor. You sent them not to be uh, insightful or uh, educational alone. And we can have all those things. But, but what you sent them for, Lord, is to show us how much you've done for us. How you went from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to it is finished for us. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, gave him up to that being at the cross, gave him to be forsaken, but also gave him to be the power to say those words, it is finished and the work is completed. Now we can trust in the covenant. Thank you that Psalm 22 is a covenant psalm. And it can tell us, Lord, we're not to be afraid. We're not to be insecure, no matter what kind of trauma we find ourselves in that because Jesus was forsaken, we will never be forsaken, that we can trust in the goodness of God. And just as Jesus looked to you, your attributes and your character, we can look to you, God, and say, we trust you, that your covenant promise is true, that you never lie, that you swore by an oath on your own self that you would keep these promises for us, God. The finished work of Jesus applied to our hearts has won our victory. We give thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.